um, ha- happy birthday, Alec. Happy 21st, happy 21st birthday leading worship on your 21st birthday. Way to go. So um, today's the sixth, and for our proverb of the day, um, verse 23, correction and instruction are the way to life. My father taught me that, and um, well, tried to. Anyway, so today I want to talk to you about um, a promise that I will not doubt because God is in control. And uh, we've learned in this series so far that the nature of God is, is to give promises. And we've defined the promises of God as this. It's a, a promise from God is an assurance that God gives his people so they can walk by faith while they wait for him to work. Okay, that's kind of the deal, while we wait. I mean, um, it's an assurance that God gives to his people. Do you, do you ever need assurance? I, I, I think, you know... I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand what's going on. It's getting pretty hard. How am I going to get through this? I mean, here's how you're going to get through it. God's going to give you some assurances. And um, when he gives those to you, it's so that you can walk by faith while you wait for God to work. And you don't have to take your view of life from what you see. You don't have to take your li- view of life from what's happening right in front of you. You don't have to listen to what some person tells you who's probably wrong anyway. Um, and, and listen, it's, it's, God has said some things, and it's in his nature. God is a promiser, a promiser. God, that's in his nature is to make promises. And here's the second thing about God. He keeps his promises. Every single one of them, he keeps his promises. Really, really good news. So uh, we're going to be in Hebrews today and other places. So Hebrews chapter 6, and, and let's just jump right in. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So, I mean, I, some of these sentences, you have to stop and slow down and go, what does that say? And this is one of those for me. What, what's he saying here is, is, is that I don't want you to mess up your Christian life. I want you to go after it. He's saying, I want you to take hold of it and make it happen, your, your walk. I want you to have the full assurances of God right up till the end. I don't want you to have to give up or back up or quit. Um, I want you to go all the way to God. That's what the writer here to the Hebrews is saying. I, he says, I don't want a single person here to quit or to turn back or to give up. You know, it's, it's, it's to make your, you want, I want, to, want you to make your calling and your election, you know, sec- sure. Second Peter, he's, and I, wa- I, wa- I want you to work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling. There's a lot in, in this, and it goes on. Why is he asking this? Because, verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish. Do you know any sluggish Christians? I mean, maybe a better question is how many of us have at some point have had a sluggish season in our life, you know, where, where our faith has just kind of been a little bit sluggish. We don't, we don't want that. We don't want to be sluggish. But, but go, the word goes on to tell us to be imitators of those through faith and patience, those who are going to inherit the promise. This little passage basically tells us, keep going until you get the stuff that God has promised you. Keep on going. It's a good encouragement. Because we don't have it yet. We do not have, I don't care how good your life is. Maybe you know, some of you got a pretty good life, like Lisa, for example. <laughs> but this is not it. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has entered even into the, the mind, the thoughts of man, the good things that the Lord has to give to his kids. 1 Corinthians 2.9. You don't have hardly any of it yet. You may have a really good thing. You may have some really good things going on in your life, or maybe you're still waiting for the good things. But we have actually almost nothing of what God has for us. It's just, we're scratching the surface. It's just this itty-bitty tiny fraction of it. This, this life is not it. Okay? It's coming. 
there's a lot yet to come. So don't be sluggish, but be an imitator of people who, through their faith and their patience, inherit the promise. Now, a little bit about those promises. We're going to work our way into this, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Now, that's kind of confusing to us in our, in our culture. We're going to come back to that concept in just a couple of minutes. So here's a little bit of background about promises. God makes a lot of promises in the Word of God, and there's basically two kinds of promises. Sometimes they're called covenants. Two kinds of promises or covenants in the Word of God. First kind that you'll see is a conditional covenant. In this kind of a, co- of a covenant, you're not getting it. If you don't do your own part, you're not going to get the covenant. Okay? It's, it's, a, it's kind of a deal. It's, it's, you, you don't get what God has for you unless you do your part. I do my part, then God does his part. That's the conditional covenant. The Mosaic covenant, the covenant God made with Moses was, and, and with the people was that basically this. If you obey me, you're going to be blessed. If you don't obey me, you're going to be judged. That was the, the Mosaic covenant, and it's a conditional covenant. Now, there are also the second kind, and, and this is what Abraham received, was an unconditional covenant. Sometimes in the word of God, you'll see that God just decides something. I'm God, I'm going to do this. I've got my purposes. I may or may not explain them to you right now. They're going to prevail, but I'm just going to do this on my own without respect to what you do. And that's what happened with Abraham. He says, you don't have to do anything. I'm going to do this. And that's an unconditional covenant. Now, historically, um, about covenants, just to give you an idea of what was going on between God and Abraham, and in their culture at the time, when there was going to be a covenant, a, a promise, a meaningful commitment between uh, um, two people who were making a deal, for, for example, they had a ceremony, and they collected a three-year-old heifer. It's a cow that hasn't had a calf yet, and a three-year-old ram, goat, and a three-year-old she-goat, and a dove, and a pigeon. And they would make their agreement, and then the three big animals, they would cut them in half. The long way. Okay? Ooh, yeah, that's right. It was, this was messy. And they would go from the biggest animal to the smallest. So they would cut the, the, the heifer in half and lay the pieces. Then they would cut the, 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 the goat and the, the she-goat and the ram. And then they, would take the, they wouldn't cut the birds in half, and they would put one on either side. So now they've got this messy scene with animals cut in half and a, and a pathway in between. And sometimes both of the people would do what I'm going to tell you. Sometimes the inferior party would do what I'm going to describe. But they would walk, they would back, actually make a figure eight walking through the center of that area, and then they would continue to walk through the center of that area, repeating the terms of the commitment. Now, when I say the inferior person, let's just say um, I'm the bank, and you want money to borrow a loan to build a house. You're the inferior person. And you would walk through there and you'd say, here's, here's, here's the agreement. I'm going to pay $1,423 every month on the 15th for 30 years. Right? You get the picture? The inferior person would do that. Sometimes the people would make a covenant and they would both do it. And they would say this, so, be this, so, so, so this be done to me if I break my covenant. Okay. Now, listen, I've bought a couple of houses in my lifetime, and I thought I had a lot of paperwork to do to sit down. You have to go sit down at the title company, and you do all that paperwork. You know what I'm talking about? All the pages and all the stuff and all of the people covering their tails and all this kind of stuff. That was nothing. This was a bloody mess. And it tended to get your attention. If you were making a commitment, you kept your commitment. Okay, so that's the deal. And that word covenant that we see and we're familiar with is in the Hebrew is bereath, and it actually means cutting. Cutting. 
And this is the place that we get our terminology, cut a deal. It goes all the way back to that. So next time you think of cutting a deal, think of big old bloody animals and stuff. Okay. <laughs> so in Genesis 12 and 15, you see descriptions here about... Um, <laughs> I'm way too immature to do this job. I don't know what, but it's too bad. Um, <laughs> So far, okay. Um, so in, in Genesis, you'll find a couple of places um, describing this covenant that God made with Abraham. Genesis 12, verses two, two and three, it says, I will make you a great nation. Here comes a promise from God to Abraham. A great nation, I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is an amazing little passage, and it's packed with stuff and rabbit trails begging for me to follow them, but I'm not going to follow them right now. But that's God's covenant with Abraham, and, and here's, here's where it takes place formally, Genesis 15, starting at verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Okay, so he's a little bit spooked here. He's dealing with very God, a very God there. He is, this is a pretty serious moment. 13, then he said, then God said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. God is telling Abram that his children's children, you know, that they're going to be in Egypt basically. He doesn't say it by name, but he's telling them they're going to be there and they're going to be slaves for 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. So I'm going to make Egypt pay. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So the Lord is prophesying what's going to happen here. Watch the movie of the Ten Commandments. Not for doctrine, but it tells a story. And you see them coming out with great possessions. The Egyptians said, yeah, yeah, go. Take our stuff. Just get out. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the pieces. That's the covenant right there going on. So Abram sees this, the smoking oven and a torch. Now, don't picture, you know, your oven in your kitchen. The, 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 the people of the day had, a, had kind of a pot uh, that they would have a fire in in their home and they would cook things on it. That's what they're talking about here. It's, it, don't, don't picture this as two different things. It's basically this smoking pot with a torch with a fire coming out of the top. But, I think, I don't mean, imagine the, the, the picture though, but it's the Lord, it's the representation of the presence and the power of the Lord that is now making the figure eight circulating between the pieces. And um, that is an amazing picture there because the Lord is saying so many things to you and to me in this moment here. He's, he's, he's first, the first thing that's going on is that God is the one who by himself is making this covenant. God is himself choosing to take the inferior place and saying, I am going to do the work to save you people. Remember, God is the one. He shouldn't be inferior to anybody anytime, but he humbles himself. What's this a picture of? I mean, this is a picture of another time when God will humble himself and pay the price for people. This is just a picture in the Old Testament. You can find Jesus Christ on every single page of the Bible if your heart is open to it. And here is a picture of what Jesus is going to do and humble himself and pay the price for you and for me. This is this loving picture. This loving picture. Don't believe the image that you would be taught that in the Old Testament, God is this vengeful, 
angry God. That's just not him. It's this loving, tender thing. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant. This is an unconditional covenant with Abraham saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river Egypt to the great river Euphrates. Unconditional. It does not matter what Abraham and his kids do or don't do. The Lord said, this is it. I'm done with this. This is your land. He says, I'm going to do that. Now, by the way, whatever your political worldview is about the nation of Israel, you got to deal with this scripture. Do you believe that this is the word of God? Do you believe God gave them to them? Do you believe when God says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you? It has my attention. And I'm not saying I support every politician in the world who does everything. (laughs) You'd have to be nuts to do that, right? (laughs) However, I trust God and I trust his word. So I want to be blessed. I don't want to be cursed, so I bless those who the Lord blesses, and I curse those. So that's kind of where I sit on that. Anyway, so back to Hebrews 6, verse 13. And here's what's being discussed here. For when God made a promise to Abraham, which was unconditional, he didn't have a person like himself that he could swear an oath with. So since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. In biblical times, when... um, when a person would make a covenant, they would swear by something greater than themselves, you know. Like, in the name of my mother. <laughs> in the name of my mother. Or, you know, there's, a, there's an example where the, the Pharisees are making these, these, these oaths. They're saying, by the temple, and someone would top that. By the gold on the temple, and Jesus said, you, you silly, you, you have no idea what you're talking about. You're like blind guides. He's talking to these Pharisees for making that kind of oath. Because they had completely lost what they were even talking about. They didn't know what they were talking about. Verse 14, Surely I will bless you and multiply you, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, waited, obtained the promise. Christian walk is about the promises. I wish I could get better at this, and I'm trying to get better at this, but my whole walk, my whole life, is about the fact that God made promises, and I believe that God has, what he has said is what he said, and and I'm waiting for God to keep promises, and I see some, and I'm trying to be patient about it. But that's the Christian life. The Lord has made promises. Do you believe them, or are you going to trust him to wait for him and watch for him, and you're going to press towards him? That's the Christian walk. So there's a lot going on here. Notice verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs... okay. God showed this because he wants us to know. God desired to show. He wants to make it really clear. Um, The heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. So these purposes, these promises that God has made cannot change. You catch that? Unchangeable character. He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, and those two unchangeable things are God's character and God's word. God's word never changes. God's character never changes. Jesus, in fact, said, all heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will remain. That's, that's the only thing. And I mean, it's kind of hard for us sometimes to imagine things that would never change. I mean, I mean it's hard for us that, but, but God doesn't ever change. He doesn't forget anything. He's like a rock. He just, you know, back to verse 17. In which it is impossible for God to lie. I love that. How hard is it for God to lie? Is it like, we're not saying that it's a really, really low percentage here, right? 
It's not, it's, it's, it's saying it's impossible. God is truth. He invented truth. Everything about God is true. He doesn't lie. He can't lie. Now, Satan, on the other hand, is a liar. <laughs> John um, 8, 44 says he's, he's called, he's a liar and the father of lies. Everything, he, he cannot tell the truth. You know, you, you, you may say to yourself, well, I think one time Satan did tell me the truth. Now you're lying to yourself. Because he's a liar and he's the father of lies. You know, God cannot lie, it's impossible. We human beings can kind of be fickle, you know, a little bit. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Um, I'm going here, now I'm going to go there instead. And, and then God's not like that. You know, God, God's, God's not like that. In fact, he says, you know, I'm not a man. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. My, you know, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than yours. Isaiah 55. Anyway, okay, back to the word. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place, this anchor for our soul. What a great picture that is. Last week, we talked about God's nature, the fact that he's a promiser. This week, we're talking about the fact that God keeps his promises. Last week, we talked about, I will not fear because God is with me. This week, we're talking about, I will not doubt because God is in control. Now, you may know um, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. I mean, it's, it's a very, very, very popular verse. Um, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. I mean, before we had kids, Lisa and I had very close friends, and, um, you know, at, at that we didn't have any friends who had children and they were like the first and they had this little girl and, you know, in my feeble attempt to give them a gift, we, Lisa and I built this wooden chair, this pathetic little wooden chair and painted it pink. But on, on the bottom side of that chair, do you remember that, honey? We wrote her name on it and we, we wrote out this scripture in like red paint on this pink chair underneath it, you know. Um, and it was like, it was like this thing we would say, say to a child, we didn't have our own, but what if we could summarize one thing we would say to, one of, to our children, it would be, in the Old Testament, it would be that. You know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's obviously an exhortation not to doubt. I studied doubt some this week to see what the world says about doubt and um, what the psychological effects are. And, and uh, you can learn some things there. Everything the world teaches isn't wrong, right? right? Okay, so I was looking to see what do what does psychologists and psychiatrists and medical doctors say about doubt? Man, that's, uh, we could spend a lot of time on that, but it's nasty. It's devastating, you know, what doubt does to people, what it does to your soul. You know, one person described it as, as, that is, as, it is as destructive to your soul as infidelity is destructive to a marriage. William Shakespeare called our doubts traitors. They're supposed to be on our side. Our thoughts are supposed to be on our team. And our thoughts sometimes are traitors to us. Interesting concept. One article that I read was in a, you know, more, of a, more of a medical scientific bent, basically said that parents who place doubts into their children when they are young, oh, you'll never amount to anything, or you're not going to be good at math, or you can never be an airline pilot. Parents that do that to their children when they're young actually lower their children's IQ. Don't know if that's true or not. Teaching small children to doubt themselves 
there is some evidence to say that, that, you know, the kids are smarter when they start out with us and we just make them dumber. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. Everything I can say right now, the Holy Spirit says, just stop it, Terry. <laughs> Dummy? No. <laughs> um, it's, it's not just your... <laughs> your <laughs> My mother also told me I could be anything I wanted. Thanks, Mom. Happy Mother's Day. First one in, right? Am I ahead of the rest of the kids yet? Outstanding. <laughs> they could have called you yesterday, but they didn't think of it. Okay, anyway, you aren't just flesh and blood. You know, in flesh and bones, you've got a mind and you have emotions and you have a will. You have a spirit. You have, you know, you have this part of you that relates to God. You have this part of you that's eternal, that's going to live forever. It's your soul. And doubt is destructive to your soul. It just can get in there and pollute things. When I doubt what God has said, it's destructive to me. It's unhealthy. It's unhealthy in every possible way. When I believe what God says, it's really good for me. When I doubt what God says, when I wallow and I wander, it's really, really hurtful to me. So I will not doubt. And I studied it this week. You know, here are some of the consequences of doubt. One, doubt is the soil that grows fear. Fear grows in soil of doubt. Luke 24, here's a story. In Luke 24, verse 36. Now, this is shortly after Jesus' resurrection. And all of the disciples, which is a large number of people, um, are confused and some of them are scattered and discouraged. Okay, verse 36. And they were, having this, they were having this conversation. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. Okay, <laughs> at this moment, those present start freaking out, and um, what just happened? Wait, 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 what, what's going to happen here? The, the, Jesus, the Lord, has been crucified, he's dead, and what's going on? You know, and and it says, verse 37, but they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Jesus is telling them, all your fear is because you doubt. I told you this would happen. I made some promises. You don't believe the promises, and that's why you're afraid. Another consequence of doubt. Doubt is the cause of our emotional peaks and valleys. Doubt is the cause of our ups and downs. Okay? I mean, you don't have to answer this question, but, but how many times have you been kind of up and down and up and down and up and down? James 1, verses 5 to 8, say, and here the context here is the P for people in trials. James is speaking. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. If you want to know what's going on in your life, if you want to know what's happening, ask God, he'll tell you. Verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Imagine, you know, imagine we were to take, take this little bottle, like get, get the rest of the water out of it, and we, we, you and I, we would go down to Westport to the jetty and we'd toss it out as far as we could toss this out into the ocean. And the wind's blowing and the waves are kind of going up and down and churning. You know, how much control would this little bottle have over where it went? Anybody? Zero! Absolutely right. It would have completely zero control over where it would go. Zero control. 
And we don't know where it would go. It could go based on the direction of the winds and the events that are going on and the circumstances and in and out and in and out and the circumstances and it would bang around on the rocks, no control. And a lot of times, that's what happens in our lives because we're living in doubt instead of faith. Living by faith, you know, we, we, we're, we're, we're in this doubt kind of a deal and we're saying, you know, what's going to happen to me? And, 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 and sometimes we're in terror. Oh, no. All of that by doubt. Living in faith, holding on to the promises of God because, you know, th- those, those things bring stability and, and they bring strength to life. I'm not living by what I see. I'm not living by what I hear. I'm not living by the latest phone call. I'm not living by what she said about me. Living by faith isn't like that. Because living by faith is not about what's going on right in front of my eyes. God's made some promises to me, and I know where this is going to end up, where it's going to land in the end, because he's made some promises. And, and I don't know where, and I don't know how, but I trust God. Living by faith gets us off this roller coaster. Living by doubt causes the peaks and valleys, and they're continuous. So doubt is the soil that fear grows in, and doubt is the cause of emotional peaks and valleys. Doubt is also the direct result of taking our eyes off of the Lord. Why do I doubt? I don't want to doubt. The reason that you doubt is that you're not looking at the Lord anymore. When our eyes are on the Lord, our heart gets filled with faith. But when our eyes are on the wind and on the waves, and on the up and the down. (laughs) Remember going out salmon fishing with my dad at Westport when I was a young guy, when you used to be that you'd go out there and you'd catch three salmon. Do you remember when the limits were three? And went out there one time, I think there was 11 people on the boat, so the boat limit, including the bait boy and the captain, was 33. And I personally caught 15 of the salmon. And the reason was, I went up on the bow. Everybody else, it was really rough. Almost everybody else was throwing up over the back. I was up on the bow fishing, and my eyes were not on the waves. I was on the horizon, and I kept yelling, fish, and I wouldn't even hardly watch the fish coming in. I wasn't getting sick. I did not have my eyes in the wind and the waves. The rest of the people were going, oh. Some of you are turning green right now. You been there? (laughs) So Matthew 14 is the story of um, the disciples. They're out in the boat. Jesus is not with them. It's stormy and it's windy and, um, you know, just there's a bunch of circumstances and Jesus comes walking up to them on the water. And they're kind of freaking out because they're not sure who this is. Verse 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. <laughs> he has to tell them who he is because they they're not sure. I don't know, it just seems funny. Be of good cheer, it is I. <laughs> I wonder if that's a literal translation or what. I don't know. King James, maybe. But settle down. It's me, Jesus. It's me. You don't have to be afraid. It's going to be okay. So they're spooked. Here comes a guy walking on the top of the water. And um, the waves, and you know, they're going back and forth. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, so Peter's not sure, command me to come to you on the water. (laughs) So he said, come. And when Peter came down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he starts seeing the wind. He's looking away from Jesus. He's looking at the wind and the waves. He's he's afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. 
See what happened here. He took his eyes off the Lord. The minute you take your eyes off the Lord, you start to sink. You know, I don't know where you've been this week or what you faced. You know, and you're thinking in your mind, I- I'm starting to go down here. I guarantee you it's because your eyes are off the Lord. You've been looking at the waves, and you've been looking at the wind, and you've been listening to the howling of the wind. I've been there. When you take your eyes off the Lord, that's when you start sinking. Verse 31, and immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Listen, loved ones, the Christian life is a life of faith. It's, you know, when you hold on to the promises of God, you, you have to, you got to believe them. You've got to hold on to them. You've got to actually believe the promises. And you've got to say to yourself, this is true. God, God has said it. I believe it. I know what's happening. I don't know when or where or how. But God made some promises, and I trust him. That's why this verse we were in before, Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And we're going to slowly go through this verse this time and um, see what it's saying, because there's so much here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's total commitment with everything you have. You know, well, I want to trust the Lord with all my heart. How am I doing? Well, the next part of this proverb will help with that. And lean not on your own understanding. Do you do that? Because you're not trusting the Lord with all your heart if you're leaning on your own understanding. You know, it's good to know some things. It's good that you've figured some things out. The problem is that are you leaning on those things that you've learned? You know, a crisis comes into your life and you're, you know, and what are you going to do now? It's, it's, it's not bad that you've figured some things out and you've learned some things and you've become wiser. But the problem is when your confidence is, hey, I know how to fix this. I've been down this road before. Back up. I'll take care of this. I mean, I always take care of business. And I know how to get through this. And I know how to get what I got to have. Don't lean on your own understanding, God says. Well, what then? Verse 6. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Wow, in every choice, in every decision, acknowledge God. This is about God. This is about God's honor. This is about God's reputation. I want to honor God with, with my life. I want to handle this in the way that pleases God. I just don't want to get myself out of this. I want to do this in a way that is honoring to God. And he shall direct your paths. So, okay, I think that seems easy to talk about, but I want to get practical on this and just take a couple um, practice runs at this maybe in our minds for a minute. Um, and, uh, and for this, I'll just apply a couple of the most common problem areas where people come to me and say, hey, can we talk about something? And, and I just picked a couple of them. Um, I could ask you, what, do, what are problems we'd face? And I think the majority, the first word that would come up would be financial. The second one would be relational. Third one would be some other topics. I mean, we could go on this, but okay. So um, some crisis comes up financial. You know, you lost your job. Things are really tight. You know, I don't know if we can be able to pay the bills, honey. Um, phone calls are getting old. This just being behind all the time. Okay, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't you believe that God sees your situation? I mean, trust in the Lord. Okay, so if I was going to lean on my own understanding, what is it that I would humanly tend to do? Instead of, you know, in all my ways, trust, um, don't, it, it would be to not acknowledge God. I'd, I, I'm going to lean on my own understanding and I start thinking these things. Okay, lean times, been through them before. We're going to tighten our belt, honey. That's what we're going to do. Not the restraint isn't 
I mean, not wise. It's a wise thing to be restrained, but okay. But, you know, we're going to tighten our belt here. We're going to watch every penny. We're not going to give any more money to roof down there, even though they help people who need food. And we're not going to give any money to the church anymore because they seem to be doing okay. Um, and, and in fact, we're going to start hoarding and we're going to start building up a pile and no more spending. You check everything with me. No more granola bars. No more juice boxes for the kids. They can get a drink at the fountain. And we're going to muscle through this. You know, we're going to tighten our belt around here. We're going to make this work. And listen, it's not wrong to be wise about how you spend. There's a proverb. Proverb 11.24 says, There's one who scatters yet increases all the more. And there's one who withholds more than is right, and it leads to poverty. If you think you can just hoard, if you think you just gut it out, you need God to help you out. You need the Lord in this situation. If you think you can handle the problem, you know, maybe it's possible that God allowed the problem in the first place because he's wanting to teach you some things. Don't know that. But if you think you're going to graduate from the stresses of financial strain apart from God, apart from partnership with God, that plan is not going to go anywhere fast. It really isn't. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Okay, this seems really hard, honey, but you know, we're going to honor the Lord. We're going to tithe. We're going to keep our commitment. We're going to trust God. We're going to believe, actually, his word that says that 90% with God and us is way more than 100% without God, but just with us partnering with the devourer. That's really the decision. And, you know, that's where we are when we leave God out. We're, we're on our own partnered up with the devourer. That might be how we got here, but that is not the way to get us out of this hole. And it's, we're going to put God first in our life. We're going to honor him and trust him to keep our promises. Don't you think God sees how much you have? Don't you think God knows what you need, sees your situation? But it was God himself who, who said to us through the prophet Malachi, test me in this. Test me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse and see if I will not pour out a blessing so much that it cannot be contained. Trust me, test me in this. Pretty clear, he says that in Malachi 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. Second problem would be family relationships. This is the second one that comes up an awful lot. Um, you know, I've got a problem with my son or my daughter or my mom or my dad or my spouse. And sometimes we feel like we've got a problem with all of them, right? <laughs> you know, I've got things to work on. There's this friction, there's tension. I'm going to trust in the Lord. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust him with all my heart. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to trust God that he will honor my obedience to him. And what I'm not going to do is get petty. What I'm not going to do is calculate the payback here. I, I'm not, I'm not going to pay her back for the way she... I'm not going to try to get even. I'm not going to take vengeance. The Lord says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. That's God's deal. I don't have to take vengeance myself. I don't have to get even. I don't have to get petty or prideful or difficult. I can just give the matter over to God and wait for him to work. Well, my son isn't where I wish he was, and every time my father calls me, it's terrible phone call because he carves in mercilessly. I'm telling you that how you handle it is everything. It's everything here. If you doubt God's word, it's not going to go anywhere good. But if you 
Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. If you trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him, and then comes this promise. By the way, this promise at the end of this passage is, is it a conditional or an unconditional? Conditional. It's conditional. <laughs> it's conditional. You have to do some things, okay? You have to trust in the Lord with all your heart. You have to acknowledge him in all your ways. You have to lean not on your standing. And if you do your part, God does his. Because this is, this, is, this is a conditional purpose. And then he will direct your paths. I looked at lots of translations. Um, make your path straight. The, the, the words here literally mean he'll make your path smooth. The idea here is that you look out your windshield and you see a bunch of bumps coming at you. you know, how am I going to get my kids through college? And how am I, I don't see any way we're going to be able to afford retirement. And um, we've got some stuff we've got to climb over and there's some bumps ahead of us in the car. And anybody have those kinds of things that you see looking at your windshield? I think we do. Okay. Um, this is, if you, if you trust the Lord with all your heart, if you don't lean on your own understanding, if, if you acknowledge him in all your ways, He's going to make your paths smooth. In today's vernacular, he'd be saying, he'll pave the way. God's going to level the ground ahead of you, and he's going to provide for you the safest, smoothest pathway to the best place possible. Road, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 is like a roadmap. Are, are you saying, Terry, that God can and is going to do this for me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's actually quite a commitment on God's part. You know, it's easy for him. He's God. You know, is anything too difficult for the Lord? I mean, he can handle anything that's in your path. Now, the biblical, the biblical term here, where the common way we would say this is God's in control. The doctrinal word here is sovereignty. Every Christian should be familiar with this term and this concept, Okay the sovereignty of God. No matter what happens, no matter what comes our way, God's in complete control. We see this in Acts 17, Paul's preaching. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, so he's sovereign over the universe, does not live in temples made by man. So he's not here in this building when you're gone. When it's empty and no one's here during the week, some weekday, God's not here. He's with you. He doesn't live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Breathe in and out. That came from God. You did not do that with your diaphragm. You think you did. So he's sovereign over the universe and humanity. And he made from one man, whose name is Adam, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. So he's Lord of all the countries and the races and the governments, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. So we learned last week that God is with us, verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. You know, I, it, you can't make God up. I always get sad when I'm in some conversation or I hear somebody said, well, you know, to me, God is 
It's like, you're already off track. You know, that whole sentence is irrelevant. God is who he is. You don't make up God into whatever image you think he is. Well, I prefer to think of God as, well, <laughs> we don't really care who you think of God as. You know, sorry, I'm going to be snotty about this. I'll be smiling at this. But, you know, but, but, but Scripture says, so we ought not to think like that, verse 29, because here's why. This is serious. The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed, okay, here it comes, a day upon which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and that man whom he has appointed is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to judge the world with righteousness. I wonder what will be the standards by which Jesus decides to judge the world. I wonder if Jesus will say, yeah, you were faithful following Buddha, or a Moloch, or name any other false god. And of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. Wow. So God's in control. He rules the universe, and he's not stressed or strained as he does it in any way. He's not, I hope I can make this okay. He's not wiping, oh, you know, you know and, and he's sovereign. And that, his sovereignty, is what lays behind every one of his promises to you. He's sovereign. Sovereign over what? Well, I'll give you a few examples in Scripture. Ephesians 1.11 says that God determines all things in accordance with his will. God determines all things in accordance with his will. That's different from you and me. We hope things will happen. God just makes things happen, and he does that when he wants to. You know, We try to get things happen, and we try to get them now because we're afraid that tomorrow we won't be able to make them happen. God doesn't even think like that. You know, He makes it happen when he's good and ready, and when it's the perfect time, according to his purposes. He determines all things according to the counsel of his will. Okay, think of a few Bible characters, and we'll see sovereignty at work. Here, how about Jonah? Because God is sovereign over rebellion. <laughs> over rebellion. Jonah, he said, Jonah, okay, you know the story. We're not going to read all the passages. I'll give you a couple of quick verses, but, um, you know, he's, God says, go over there and tell them about me. He says, I'm not going, and he starts running and goes the opposite direction. You know the story of Jonah, right? Okay. And, and, and so here's the first thing that happens. Jonah chapter one, verse four, it says, the Lord appointed a great wind. You study that out. Actually, the word says hurled. <laughs> the Lord tossed a windstorm. It's <laughs> crazy. And all the guys on this ship are afraid for their lives. But, but if you read it through, does Jonah get the message? No, he does not get the message. He's still rebellious. So the Lord ratches it up a notch. In verse 17, it says, the Lord appointed a great fish. <laughs> And um, God's not done with Jonah yet just because he pushed back once. So you know the whole story. Eventually Jonah fulfills God's purposes and he goes in the great city. Nineveh is saved. But still, even after that, Jonah is this discouraged and uh, depressed guy because he's, he's, he's still prideful and rebellious. And uh, verse, chapter 4, verse 6, you know, God is being really tender with him. He says, The Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might shade over his head. Jonah is pouting in the sun, frying and baking in the sun, and God says, Let me help you out here. And he sticks a plant there and comes up and gives him shade. Cool off. You just time out and cool off. <laughs> the Lord was so tender and so loving towards him, he won Jonah's heart. God is sovereign 
over rebellion. Okay, and this next one is really comforting me. God is sovereign over sin. <laughs> Even when you, in your life, or other people choose to sin and it affects you, God's sovereign over that. Talk about Joseph. Joseph, one of my favorite characters in the Old, Old Testament. In Genesis, this is a guy who has these huge dreams that God has given him about his future. And his brothers hear the dreams and they're not buying it, right? They're not buying it at all. And, and so what do they do? They beat him, they strip his clothes off him, and then they sell him into slavery. He didn't deserve it. They sinned against him. His brothers, who should have loved and protected him, sinned against him. Anybody ever sinned against you? <laughs> you know, it's like, and you think, what is going on? This isn't right. I don't deserve this. They're sinning. God's sovereign over sin. So Joseph goes on. He's trying to honor God with his life. He's trying to trust, trust in the Lord with all your heart. He's trying to do this. And the next thing that happens is this, this lady falsely accuses him of, of attempted rape. And he gets to go to jail for something he didn't do. He's innocent. She sinned. And he's, you know, he's, he's thinking at this point, my life is over. And God's still sovereign over sin. And he works hard and he gets the favor of the jailer and pretty soon uh, there's a couple of other characters in there. There's a baker and a butler in there and he interprets some dreams for them and the process goes by and Pharaoh hears about it and Pharaoh promotes him to become the ruler of Egypt. (laughs) Everything comes true even though the baker and the butler had forgotten him. The Lord just keeps overcoming the sin. You know, God is sovereign over sinning brothers and he's sovereign over false accusers and he's, he's sovereign over false friends. And Pharaoh promotes him, and his brothers come to him, and they, they don't know who he is, and they come to him at the end of the story, and they are sure now that, oh, this is caught up with us. We're going to pay now. And here's what he says to them, and this is the Genesis 50-20 rule. You should remember the Genesis 50-20 rule. You meant it for evil, but the Lord meant it for good. A lifetime of false accusations and going to jail and sold into slavery. And here he is saying, God meant it all for good. God carried me through this. What an awesome truth that God can use even the sins of other people to accomplish his will in your life. Trust him with all your heart. He's, he's sovereign over rebellion and sovereign over sin. Get, and he's also sovereign over world events. And the incredible story of, you know, Queen Esther, who had some awful things happening to her. And you can read the story. Um, and, and when you read the story, I will mention it, that, that, that is the only book in the entire Bible where God's name is not mentioned. And even though his name is not mentioned, God is working and working and working in the background, sovereign all the time. And at the same time, what's going on in this backstory here with, with Esther is that Satan has stirred up the heart of, of, a, of, a, of a leader to kill all of the Jewish people. That's a common story in history, right? Satan was wanting to kill the, the, Satan wanted to kill the lines that would produce the Messiah. And then he's wanted to kill the, the, the children of God ever since, the, the children of Israel. He's always been doing that. Anyway, Esther doesn't know what to do. She hears about this deal, this plot that's going to kill her and all of her countrymen, and she's living in, she's basically living in the, um, in the palace, and so um, she hears about this, but her thinking is, you know, th- th- if, if I go in and ask for, for the king to do something, he might kill me. I'm in a safe place right now, living in the palace, and Mordecai, who was kind of like her cousin, but, but, but treated her like a daughter. He says this to her. 
Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will rise from another place. He's saying, God's sovereign. If you don't do it, God's going to find somebody else that'll do this. God's purposes are going to be accomplished. He goes on, he says, but you and your father's house will perish and who knows whether you have, to, you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. All these awful things, Esther, that you've been through. Everything you've had to endure, all this pain and all this suffering have brought you to this place and God is sovereign. He knew all along what he was doing. He's sovereign over rebellion. He's sovereign over sin. He's even sovereign over world events. Proverbs 16, 33 says, the lot falls into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. God's sovereign. Now, I think people get stuck because they look around and they see evil things going on. How come if God is sovereign, this is happening? Just because God is sovereign doesn't mean that every decision that people make is God's will. It's not the same thing. People sin. People do evil things and it's that are not God's will and there is a consequence and there is things that happen because of that. But God's purposes will prevail. It's a theme all throughout scripture. Proverbs 19, 21, Isaiah 14, Haggai 2, 20. There's lots of places you can read. God is sovereign. I want to close with our passage and then pray. Uh, Hebrews 6, 18 and 19. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to, hope fa- to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place. I wonder how many of us right this minute to have our, need to have our soul anchored. You know, the wind's blowing, the waves are crashing, and we need an anchor so bad. I will not doubt because God is in control. Let's pray. Lord, it is really hard sometimes to not look at the waves. It's really hard because many times they're the source of pain. Forgive us, Lord, when we take our eyes off of you and even when we go further, Lord, and we blame you for the sinful decisions and acts other people make. We know that's not your heart towards us. Forgive us for that. But Lord, help us with this issue of how hard it is to look away from the waves. God, we know that when we are eye-locked with you, something of faith and steadfastness builds into us. When we feed our faith, doubt dies. Help us, Lord, to feed our faith. God, I want to pray for people in a storm in this room today. And I ask God for mercy. I ask God for you to provide for them what they need today to find their way back to faith, to find their way to you. Lord, carry, carry us through our waves and our wind. Carry us, Lord. And Lord, I, I want to also worship you this morning with my attitude and my heart and recognize you're so sovereign. Recognize, God, that your choice with Abram was just a picture of the future price your son would pay, that I can't pay the price for my sin. I just can't get that high, that, that, that much to, to pay for the price. Thank you that you knew that and you sent your son specifically because I couldn't, and you love that kind of love. Thank you for it, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 How many of the prayer team come up?